Hey everybody, welcome to the PDX Beat, the culture show that keeps a finger on the pulse of all things Portland. I'm your host, Amado Lumba, and this episode features my chat with local author Ellie Alexander. We talked about her writing journey and her book called On Thin Icing, which is part of the Bake Shop Mystery series from St. Martin's Paperbacks. Ellie was actually born just across the Columbia River in Vancouver, Washington, but she'd also lived in Portland for a while. And, uh, you know what? Let me have her tell you the story. Our first house was in Woodstock. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Loved that area. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, it was, uh, so when were, I, gra- I went to U of O, um, so I graduated in the, um, 95 from U of O. So Woodstock back then was not, I mean, there was no new seasons. It was very much like you had autos and the Delta and a pub. Um, it's changed dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. I used to live in, um, Hawthorne area. Uh-huh. Uh, and division, like between right. Hawthorne and Division, and literally when I moved out of there into to the Northwest, that's when Division started popping up. Of course, popping right? Up. Yeah. And now, did you see the Hawthorne is like the most desirable neighborhood yeah. in the United States? It's crazy, yeah, right? I, oh. I mean, it's understandable. Also, it I mean, is. for what Hawthorne offers, right? But uh, but yeah, I remember uh, living there in in that area, and um, and I would have my my favorite spot, and you know, and it was still in that middle ground of being. Um, crowded but not really too crowded yeah. so I was, I was really happy with it uh and now now it is you know the way it is right now is like super crowded yes. overcrowded uh that i don't even like going there anymore. i know same you know and that's why i actually love vancouver i feel like i should whisper about this but <laughs> main street downtown is so great it is like woodstock and hawthorne back in the day and it's just starting like the trend is coming. So and I heard there's going to be some major development there. Yeah, yeah. the whole waterfront. It's yeah. going to be bigger than the Portland waterfront, yeah. if you can believe it. But yeah, if you go home that way, just go up Main Street. You'll be I, like, this is so cool. I yeah. am going to go that way because yeah. I've but not then been... don't tell anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> did you hear what Mayor um, Charlie Hill said yeah. about that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. But there is totally... If, did you grow up in the Northwest, too? Or? I mean, I've lived here in Portland for pretty much 18, yeah. 19 years. Yeah, so you've years, seen so. the shift then, yeah. too. And there's kind of like, there, there are those two factions. Of, yeah, uh-huh. but it's funny because it's always, I mean, I've, I've always felt Vancouver as being part of Portland. Right. I mean, because I lived here in Vancouver for a tiny bit as well, uh-huh. uh, back in like the late 80s. Right. Um, and, you know, in Portland, just being a hop and a skip away, we yeah. just felt like Vancouver is part of Portland. Yeah, again. same, me too. But <laughs> there are, it's it's probably like Beaverton. People have this idea that all of Vancouver is just like, you know, new development. And, right. Yeah. And I know you, can't, you probably can't complain about where you live right now, but... Where, where else would you live if you had a, a druther? Oh, wow. I re- Honestly, I love the Northwest so much. I've traveled extensively. I would always find my way back here. I do love Ashland, where this series is set, because it's a lot smaller. Um, I don't know if I would love it as much if I lived there. I try to go down at least three times a year and visit, and... I think I have that semi-idyllic perspective of it because I go as a long-term visitor, but it's really beautiful. Yeah. A lot more sun. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me a little bit more, actually, about your um, your writing background. Sure. I wrote my first mystery when I was in second grade, if you can believe that. <laughs> yes. What was it about? It was about um, a haunted house on a hill. It had no plot whatsoever and a lot of, like, thump, thump, thump and um, creaky stairs and flat tires on bikes. Um, but anyway, so I, I really... I think I was a reader first and foremost. My mom introduced me to mysteries at a very young age and read aloud to us. And my dad was an honors English teacher and taught Shakespeare. So he would always be reading sonnets. We would have a Midsummer Night's Eve party every summer where people came in full old English attire and food and backyard torches. 
And then we would visit the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. So I think all those kind of layers built up to the idea of the series. I wrote all growing up and minored in creative writing in college. But it wasn't until I had gone out and done other things and had some life experience that I decided, like, oh, now I really am ready to write for myself. Sure, you kind of reeled it all back in. Yeah, exactly. And thought back to your two-year-old self. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They say you can't go home again. I'm not sure that's true. I'd been home for almost six months and found myself settling back into a comfortable and familiar pace. Working at our family bake shop, Tort, had helped ease the sting of leaving my husband and the life I'd known behind. I didn't have any answer about what was next for Carlos and me, and the longer I was home, the less it seemed to matter. Ashland, Oregon. My welcoming hometown was the perfect place to mend. Being surrounded by longtime friends and family for the past few months had made me realize that while my heart may have been a bit broken, I wasn't. It was an important distinction and hopefully a sign that I'd made the right decision. So with regard to On Thin Icing, which I really enjoyed, by the way, (laughs) I literally read through like six eighths of it in one night, and then I'm like, I got to I got to sleep. I got to sleep now. You know, um, it, so it's a real, it's a really good book, and I really like the story a lot. And I re- uh, realized that it's actually the second book, or is it the third book? It's the third, yeah, uh, of that series. Yes, perfect. So I know now that I really want to read the other two, um, but I, I love that it's set in Ashland, Oregon. So for you know, and for my pod- podcast, it's, you know, it's all about Portland, really. But I, re- I like also featuring anything and everything that's happening in Oregon. But why did you choose Ashland, Oregon as the setting for your story? Well, so in this genre, they're called cozy mysteries, which means um, not a lot of gratuitous violence. They usually feature an amateur sleuth. In this instance, Jules, Juliet Montague Capshaw, is a pastry chef who has returned home to Ashland to heal a broken heart and help run the family bake shop. And there's almost kind of a village setting in this genre, and Ashland just seemed perfect because it's tucked away, it's at the southernmost part of the state, so it has that Oregon outdoor influence. You have the Cascade Mountains and the Siskiyou Mountains and the Rogue River. And then Ashland itself is home to the Oregon Shakespeare Fest, and the whole downtown plaza is designed truly in Elizabethan architecture, so it's kind of like Disneyland for theater lovers. And I just thought that would really play well into a mystery series. And having the theater allows me to add maybe just like a touch more drama that you couldn't do that wouldn't really work if you were just writing about, say, Portland. Well, Portland has its own drama, of <laughs> yes, course. Yes, it does. <laughs> a different kind of drama, perhaps. Um, but I, the characters get to be a little more over the top and theatrical because that's kind of the vibe. Ashland also has Southern Oregon University, so you have, you know, this collegiate community and then the theater. And then it's also sort of two towns because when the theater is in um, season, then you have tourists from all over the world descending, and then during the winter it's really sleepy and quiet. Yeah, so I don't know. I just, I love it. And then I have to go visit. There we go. <laughs> Forces you to visit. I have to go research. So yeah. the drama, the Shakespeare uh, Festival being there um, has a subtle kind of note in the background, and at the same time being 
uh, brought forward as the plot calls for it. Exactly, yeah. And the theater is going to, as the series goes on, there are some certain characters who are part of the theater. Uh, Jules' friend, or maybe frenemy, Lance, who is the artistic director, likes to jump in and um, be part of the case when she's solving a murder. So there will be recurring characters who continue to go on through the series. Um, I read one of the uh, reviews for the book and, and mentioned uh, how the characters are very likable. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with that. Uh, actually, I love the, the character of Lance. Yes. <laughs> you know, how, how did you create him? Well, I have a great friend who works for Portland Center Stage. And when I knew that I was going to start this series, I wanted to research as much as I could about the inner workings of the theater. I love going to plays. My husband and I go to Portland Center Stage all the time. Um, and of course, having gone to Oregon Shakespeare Festival and I've done backstage tours and interviewed people. So I did that first. I wanted to get, I wanted it to feel really authentic too. And then, um, I don't know, he just, he's sort of evolved because he, um, he is dramatic and he's a bit over the top. And yet as he's evolved with me on the page, he he's going to reveal these pieces of himself. He has this whole depth underneath him, and he doesn't let a lot of people see that because he puts on this persona as the artistic director. Um, so I'm really excited about his relationship with Jules because I think she's going to bring more of that depth out in him too. Lance had a flair for the dramatic. He was perfectly cast as artistic director for the award-winning Oregon Shakespeare Festival Theater. He looked the part, too. Today, he wore a pair of tapered jeans, a black turtleneck, purple scarf, and expensive shoes. I'm so glad you stopped by, he said, taking a cheese blintz from the box of pastries from Tort and returning to his seat. I have a favor to ask. I handed him a stack of paper napkins. Does this involve me and one of your productions? Because you know that my answer is going to be no. One day, darling, one day I'll convince you I'm good at getting what I want. He bit into the blintz for effect. Dabbing his chin with a napkin, he continued, But no, this favor involves your culinary prowess. Okay, I like the sound of that. You may have heard that our quarterly board meeting is coming up. Lentz set the blintz on a napkin. Usually we have it here in town, but I want to do something more extravagant this year, so I'm hosting a weekend retreat for the entire executive board at the Lake of the Woods Lodge next weekend. I want you to cater. The theme is Cozy Cabin. I've rented the lodge for an entire weekend. I'm pulling out all the stops. I want the board to feel pampered and dazzled by the food. We have a huge giving campaign that we're going to kick off next month, and I need them feeling ready to get out there and raise new funds and friends for the theater. This is what you've been hoping for, Jules, I told myself. There's not a lot of time to prepare. Your event is in just over a week. I'll have to call suppliers right away and make sure they have enough in stock. He waved me off. Darling, you're the best chef in town. You'll figure it out, I'm sure. I know you won't disappoint. Is Juliet you? <laughs> I wish. I wish that uh, I had her artistic skill. Juliet is part of me, absolutely. Uh, she's much more romantic than I am. She's a better pastry chef than I am. But um, I think kind of her heart and her relationship with her mom, one of the things that I love about writing this series is writing the relationship between Jules and her mom, Helen. And Helen is very um, based on my mom. My mom was a counselor and this great home baker. 
And when my friends would come over after school, there would always be homemade cookies and they'd all kind of gather around the table and just sort of spill their guts to my mom. And Helen serves that purpose for the whole community of Ashland at Tort, their family bake shop. People come in for more than just like a latte. They want Helen's listening ear. And I think sometimes, especially in fiction, mother-daughter relationships are really maligned or intense. There's a lot of angst between those relationships. And I enjoy writing a mother-daughter relationship where they support each other. We don't see as much of Helen in this book and on Thin Icing because she's back running tort, but um, she and Jules have many more culinary adventures in store for sure. And I really love how you painted tort yes. uh, in this book. And also, I also want to point out also, I like the fact that um, even though this is the third book in the series, you do uh, there are a couple of uh, sections where you do harken back to the other two books. But I felt like as a reader, I didn't need to at that point read back to the other two in order to fully immerse myself in on thin icing. So kudos to you on that. That's good. <laughs> I love I love how you describe Tord. I can picture in my head, uh, you know, as you were describing that little cafe, uh, and I really want to go there because I love small coffee shops like that. Um, but uh, speaking of that coffee shop, there's a particular character in On Thin Icing that works, who works at the coffee shop that played a, an integral role in this one, and that's Sterling. Yes. How did you craft Sterling? Well, it's interesting, especially your comment about Whitney. So there are key characters who continue throughout the series, Jules and her mom Helen and Lance and Carlos, her estranged husband, and um, the police chief, uh, the professor, Thomas. But... There are also characters in these, because they are mysteries, we need a suspect pool. So in most books, we're going to have like five or six suspects who kind of show up for this particular plot. And then once that mystery is solved, they disappear. Well, when I wrote the first book, which is titled Meet Your Baker. I love that book. <laughs> I know. The titles are so funny. So when I wrote that book, Sterling was originally just a suspect in that book. And um, as I got to know him I thought wow I really am enjoying him I want to keep him around and um, I just I fell in love with him as a character he in this book I think really shines because he is up at Lake of the Woods with Jules and um, they're kind of teaming up together and Carlos her ex-husband who or estranged husband I guess arrives on the scene and kind of takes Sterling under his wing but Sterling even though he's young and this novice chef has this old soul and I like that he gets to offer Jules advice, even though Jules is his boss and mentor, he's also able to offer her sort of some insight to what's going on in her personal relationships. And, you know, and, and it's believable, you know, yeah. you do have, you do have young people like that who, uh, who are like, who are you? I mean, how do you know this? How do you have so much wisdom right. in such a young package? So no, and I like that character as well. And then, which brings, which brings us to Carlos, actually. Uh, <laughs> how did you craft him? How did I craft him? I really don't know. He was a figment of my imagination. <laughs> now, I will say that my husband was always like, who is Carlos? <laughs> <laughs> who is the real Carlos? Yeah, where's the Carlos? I don't know. When, when I thought about Jules originally, when I was kind of crafting her as a character, because she has this name, Juliet, Shakespeare's most romantic heroine of all time, you could say of all literature in some ways, right? And I want those little touches of whimsy in Shakespeare. You don't have to be a Shakespeare aficionado to read the series, but there are some little like subtle references to the bard that I try to weave in. But I thought she needed to be romantic. And I wanted to show her coming home to heal her broken heart, but not being broken. 
sometimes characters are really broken too and I didn't want that and so I thought well you know what if while she was originally working as a pastry chef on this cruise ship she's met some exotic Latin perhaps that seems quite romantic man and fallen in love kind of on a whim she marries him and they're at sea and they're living this sort of magical life that isn't exactly real and then when she comes home there's this whole push and pull between being home and falling in love with Ashland and also sort of still having all these feelings for Carlos I don't think I really answered your question I don't know <laughs> where no worries, he came, it came from. out of nowhere he came out of nowhere well he came from Spain he came from Spain I, I love how you know the dialogue uh, between Juliet and, and Carlos it's very believable the way you write it and I, and I could hear Carlos's accent in yeah. my head as I as I was as I was reading it um, but it I, you know I'd be interested because you did uh, include uh, at the end of the on thin icing an excerpt of the of the next book so I'll be interested to to read more about Carlos for sure well I will say that um, my son is in a Spanish immersion program and so he is a fluent Spanish speaker he's been in Spanish since kindergarten and when I was working on this book I would take it into his maestros his teachers and they would say oh no 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 Carlos because I would just have like Google Spanish and they'd be like no 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 that's not what he's gonna say to her he's gonna say this so that's hopefully awesome. that's where some of the authenticity comes through like our page on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash the pdxb follow us on Twitter at the pdxb Email us at thepdxbeat at gmail.com and check out our website at www.thepdxbeat.com. This is the third book in the series so far. Um, as you were drafting the, the stories, have, were there any characters that were... Um, for lack of a better term, ended up on the cutting room floor? Oh, that's a good question. Not usually. When I work on a plot, I always start with the out-of-whack event, which is the murder. So in this case, um, when I was, I have a whiteboard that's behind me, and when I'm working on a new book, I'll say, like, you know, what happened? So Jules is out at Lake of the Woods, this remote Alpine Lodge, a blizzard strikes, she can't find an item she needs for her baking, and finds the bartender, who's not a very likable guy, literally on ice, iced and in the freezer. So I start with that and then I map out my suspects and usually, like I said before, I want five or six. So I do a whole chart of what they're hiding or they're lying about something because hopefully then as the reader, you're, there's always suspicion being cast at someone because everybody's lying about something, whether or not it's, whether they're the killer, we don't know yet. So I kind of start there, and once I have that suspect pool, then I go through and, you know, kind of sketch out our main cast of characters and how they're going to weave into the plot. So no one's been cut, but names do change. Sometimes I'll start with a name, and then as I get into the story and the plot, I think, oh, you know, she doesn't really sound like a Marie. She needs to be a Mercury or Mercedes, and the name will kind of evolve with the character. Mm -hmm. And, and no, I, with, with the on thin icing, I definitely was... I had I was suspicious of a couple of a, a couple of characters, um, probably for like half or maybe three quarters of the book. Yeah. Um, and actually, it kept me guessing until the very end. So kudos to you on that. Good. Uh, I was surprised that it wasn't who I thought it was. Uh huh. 
And then I realized, gosh, that probably would have been too formulaic if it had been those people. Right. Um, I'm not going to reveal anymore. I know. Because I want hard. people to read your book. <laughs> yeah. Because I think they'll, they'll definitely enjoy it. The pizza shop was designed in the same naughty pine style as the rest of the lodge. It had a retro feel with old video game consoles and a bookcase filled with a variety of board games, puzzles, and books. A genius distraction to keep hungry kids occupied while they waited for their pizzas. A large whiteboard with the pizza menu read, Closed for the season. See you again in the spring. I walked behind the counter into the pizza kitchen. The kitchen definitely hadn't been used in a few months. A layer of dust had formed on the countertops and the space smelled musty. The freezer was in the back. I opened it to find it stocked with pre-made pizza crusts, cheese, and other supplies. But not our sausages. Where else could they be? I surveyed the shop again, assigned directed customers outside for ice. Could that be where Sterling had put them? Putting my glove back on, I took a deep breath and prepared to head into the bitter wind again. Sure enough, there was a large chest freezer on the covered deck outside, jackpot. I brushed the snow from the top of the freezer and pushed the lid open. A shock assaulted my body as I lifted the lid. I threw my hand over my mouth and stepped away from the freezer. Our supplies weren't inside the frozen cavern, but something else was. A body. A dead body. town of, uh, of Ashland in your book, which of course, you know, I'm sure there's some um, fictional elements to it as well, in, in, in addition to the real elements that people will be familiar with, and, and the setting that you chose for it. It definitely has that small town feel that's akin to the Gilmore Girls, um, Stars Hollow there. Yes. Was, that, uh, was that conscious on your part? Way to your... throw that out. I'm impressed. <laughs> on your part? <laughs> did you know they're making a movie? Uh, pardon? <laughs> did you know they're making a Gilmore oh, Girls? I did not know mm. about that. I will be there front and center. Well, but um, the father will not be there. No, he died. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I used to watch Gilmore Girls. That makes me like you even more. <laughs> Who didn't? Come on. Who can't love some Gilmore Girls? Who can't? <laughs> so fantastic. Uh, yes, that was totally intentional. In fact, um, this was originally a project crafted by St. Martin's Press. They wanted something written that was based in a small town with a mother-daughter relationship that kind of harkened back to a Gilmore Girls vibe. And so when my agent sent me information about it, I jumped at the chance. I love to bake myself, so I thought, okay, well, baking, that's great. And um, food was really a love language in my family growing up. My mom would bake those homemade cakes and cookies, and my dad, when he wasn't teaching on the weekend, would craft these just gorgeous, beautiful eight-layer torts. All of the recipes in the book our family recipes are mine so I already kind of had that background and then you know Ashland seemed very much like a star's hollow and it all kind of just melded together and and the way you write about the dynamics in the kitchen as well it, it makes me uh, suspect that you used to work in a kitchen in a professional kitchen because the way the way it flowed um, 
it just seemed very methodical and, and, and very real. How did you... Uh, how did you craft that? That's great. I have never worked in a professional kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> what I like to say is most of my recipes, well, every recipe that makes the final cut in the book tastes delicious, but they never look as beautiful as Jules. Jules has that talent that I do not have. <laughs> I'm not trained as a pastry chef. I have interviewed many, many pastry chefs. I have been fortunate enough to be invited into the back of the kitchens and get to see the inner workings of how a professional kitchen work so that's been great I watch a lot of Food Network as research <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite Food Network show ooh well um, or shows so many uh, this summer it was Cutthroat Kitchen because I have a middle schooler and that's just such it's ridiculous fun, fun. Uh, if I had to pick one I love the Barefoot Contessa okay she's just that kind of actually that's the vibe that I get from Jules is uh, so she's kind of like the naked chef barefoot yes. contessa combined into one yeah she's a little more she'd Jamie the, than yeah <laughs> she'd be the love child of those two that's right <laughs> oh we could be up to something <laughs> I'm yeah. just saying <laughs> yeah um, and, the, and you know and the way you in, in, interweave the, the recipe and the, the making of the dish um, seamlessly in, in the plot line I think that's very that's very cool I was actually hungry a lot when I was reading your book good <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of dabble in bread making so I can picture the whole, that whole process and definitely understand that whole process. But again, I think even a novice or a kitchen idiot <laughs> would, would be able to really uh, immerse themselves uh, into this book. So I appreciate that. And I know that you actually added the recipes at the end of the book, which was great because I'm like, I really want to learn how to make that. So, yeah. uh, so I appreciate that. But what made you decide to put those particular recipes in the story? Those usually evolve organically. I have a running list of recipes that I want to use for books and obviously I want them to work seasonally so sometimes the seasons just don't work now the funny thing is I was working on this book which is set in the dead of winter blizzard cold snowed in when we were having a massive heat wave last summer <laughs> so I was just sweating hot and we were cooking a lot of things outside over the grill. And I thought, well, what if there was like a wood-fired oven there? So that just kind of evolved out of pure necessity because it was too hot to cook inside <laughs> here. And then sometimes as Jules is in the kitchen, I'll think, well, what would what would be helpful for her from like almost a comfort level or in her own arc of her emotional roller coaster that she's on because i do think cooking is so sensory and if, you know if you're a bread maker yourself there's there's always that process of rising and kneading the dough and the yeast and so it's her way to kind of take herself out of her like daily thought churn and just kind of escape it's meditative um so usually that that's where it starts now i will say there are a lot of recipes that don't make the final cut because the books usually have somewhere between six and eight recipes and i get so much reader feedback about things that maybe i've just referenced but don't end up in the recipes in the first book meet your baker there's a recipe for lime mint cupcakes that jules just talks about and i think she she briefly makes but they don't make the recipe cut and i get reader feedback all the time begging me for that recipe <laughs> <laughs> so not everything that she bakes ends up in the final cut right curious to see if there was any if you'd thought about actually making the character male 
and how that would have changed the dynamics. Oh, yeah. It could have been from Carlos's point of view. There would be a lot more like, <laughs> I don't know, long gazes. And <laughs> <laughs> or Thomas, her high school boyfriend is the um, detective in training and uh, it could have been through his voice. I No, I think I it was always going to be in Jules' voice. I did consider at one point writing it in third because in some ways that's easier. The drawback in writing in first person is Jules has to be everywhere because it's her voice so something can't happen you know at the Shakespeare festival that she's not privy to so my challenge is always you know like in this book we have to get all the characters up to Lake of the Woods so that she can witness it but I think her voice is so strong and ultimately it is her story I think there's kind of a recurring subplot through all of the series about the idea of home and can you go home again and when you come home again are you the same so I love exploring that and that is really like her true story so it feels good to me to write in her voice and I know that Ashland fits the the theme in terms of a small town feel could you have written this uh, story and th these stories to happen in Portland they would have such a different vibe if they happened in Portland. I could write them in Portland. I mean, Portland is where it's at in terms of food and food culture. But creating that warm and kind of cozy, welcoming atmosphere would be harder to do in Portland. I think that happens in Portland in neighborhoods and segments. But it's just too big to have it feel as inviting, I guess. And there's something to be said about you look at you go to a place that seems very idyllic and then you know then you don't know that there's murders happening <laughs> under the covers yes i think that's really cool and that is fictional every time i go to ashland they're like you know we don't have any murder i'm like i know i'm sorry <laughs> is, is lake of the woods fictional also lake of the woods is not it oh, is real okay i was uh my family and i vacationed there a couple summers ago and it is exactly as i describe it in the book it's really rustic there was no cell service up there wow. in the summer which was just such a gift um, and it's gorgeous, so I highly recommend if you're in um, Portland to go check it out. I'm curious, have, have you had any uh, uh, feedback at all from some of the places that you've used the actual actual place names and, and all that stuff? Ashland and uh, the entire community, community of Southern Oregon has been so welcoming. I feel completely humbled. Yeah, everywhere that um, I've said something or... Um, visited they've just they have really fallen in love with the books and taken it under their wing the great thing about going down as often as I do is I've built relationships with some book clubs and readers so they're great they're constantly sending me new ideas or things that I should go check out the next time that I'm there the only thing is that I do write about Ashland and I try to keep it as real and authentic as possible. The murder is fictional. Um, but also the beauty of writing fiction is I can kind of move things around. So the plaza and the way I describe it and Lithia Park and then going up the stairs to the Oregon Shakespeare complex, that's all real. And I have a map of Ashland that I work on while I'm drafting a manuscript. But I can kind of move things around too. There's no Mary Windsor. Jules has a nemesis, Richard Lord, who owns the dreaded Mary Windsor Hotel. There's no Mary Windsor across the street in the plaza downtown. But because I write fiction, I can just be like, boop, okay, there is now. <laughs> what has been the most popular recipe that you've included in the three books thus far? Ooh, I would say the most popular thus far have been my dad's tort, which is in the first book. It is a hazelnut 
apricot with a mocha buttercream eight layer tort. And my dad is honestly like a pastry chef trained on his own, but his stuff looks like I imagine Jules would. It's beautiful. So that in this particular book, I've gotten a lot of feedback about these orange cardamom rolls oh. that Jules mm. makes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that one right there. As soon as as I was reading that, I'm like, I want to either make that or just eat it right yeah. now. <laughs> no, that should be like the little warning. Do not read while you're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie Alexander, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. That was Ellie Alexander. She can be found online at www.bigshotmystery.com where you'll find more information about her and her other works. The fourth book in the series called Caught Bread-Handed, <laughs> I really like the puns in the titles, is available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at your local bookshops through IndieBound. Links are also included under the show notes for this episode. And that's our show, folks. Our theme music is called Cataracts from local musician Sweet Nothing. Additional music in this episode is from Moscow-based artist Kai Engel, who I discovered via the freemusicarchive.org website. Special thanks also go out to my dear friend and Portland-based actor Danielle Weathers for reading the book excerpts included in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or wherever you download quality podcasts. If you're aching for another Portland-centric podcast, Give my buddy Sean Barron's weekly show a listen, will ya? It's called The Portland Cool Podcast, which is also available on iTunes. This has been a presentation of The PDX Beat. I'm Amado Lumba. Thanks for tuning in.